Welcome to the Spotlight series presented by Surviving Society. In these episodes, Chantel and Tiso take a step back and hand over hosting to academics, activists and grassroots community organisations. These are a range of episodes positioned locally and globally to tell the stories that need to be heard. Enjoy. Hey, I'm Rob Carley. I'm with Leah Joseph, and we're talking a little bit about a book I wrote at the end of last year called Culture and Tactics, Gramsci, Race and the Politics of Practice. We're both U.S.-based sociologists. I've got a sociology background. I'm sort of a sociologist, <laughs> and I'm uh, going to spend some time talking about some of the ideas that came out of the book. And some of the points we're going to try to hit today uh, have to do a little bit with how I came to write about this book, the case studies that I used, um, and a little bit about the way that the theory of ideology works in my book, right? and also the relationship of some of the scholarship in the book to critical race theory. Yes. And then just how we come to understand race, racialization in a transnational context. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so I think we should just start with the foundational question of how you came to your book, and then yeah. we'll move into race and racialization. Right. So the dissertation really, my dissertation project informed this book, sort of material um, that I use to sort of think about and analyze racialization comes out of these sort of case, historical case studies, mm -hmm. Italy in the early 20th century. And um, a lot of that was in uh, Gramsci's writing, right? right? And so uh, I had started reading Gramsci from a very young age, or I guess relative to anyone reading Gramsci <laughs> at all, right? Right. <laughs> right. So like not as a graduate student, but as an early undergraduate, when I was uh, in a literature program uh, at university as an undergrad, in order to really sort of, you know, at this time, mm -hmm. a lot of the terms that Gramsci has popularized in a contemporary way, certainly hegemony. Um, were embedded in these historical examples right. um, that, that made limited sense to me. And so I began to try to understand these historical examples, right? Talking about sort of aspects that contributed to the Italian unif unification of the modern Italian nation state. Right. And one of the things that, that sort of came up was uh, this, this concept of, of the subaltern, which also was popular at that time as yeah. a sort of theoretical concept, largely popularized by Gayatri Spivak in her paper, Can the Subaltern Speak? When I began investigating these concepts, I began looking for secondary sources. And um, one of the ones that I had found was this book. At the time, I was a literature student, and there was this book by Pasquale Verdicchio uh, called Bound by Distance, and yeah. it was about the Italian diaspora. Uh, Verdicchio, around the same time that he wrote this book, winds up translating Gramsci's Southern Question, mm -hmm. which is important in, in my book and giving historical context to it. So what, it, what Verdicchio does really well is he, he, he points to the idea that there's a relationship between the concept of subaltern and race. Right. And at, so I'm reading Verdicchio in my undergraduate years, and, and I'm realizing, like, oh, subaltern um, isn't necessarily a code word for race, but subaltern in some ways captures race, but how? Right. And that's when I began to think about the relationship between that concept, the concept of the subaltern, and the, and, and the concept of racialization. A lot of the historical cases emerge from Gramsci's experience organizing and um, uh, as I guess we, a simple way to refer to it is as, act, as an activist. When he comes to Ortorino in, in 1914, mm -hmm. but really becomes active in 1916, that notion of, of, of racialization really stuck. And so building that out as a historical case study 
um, really made me look at the Italian criminologists right. and also people who had done work and research on Italian criminology, also what the political context was like during that time. And, I, and, and it, there, there became sort of a natural affinity between the langu- language that Gramsci was using and the way that he was conceiving of what, sub- what subaltern meant. Right. This sort of context furnished the racialization aspect. Then it began looking more closely for, the, for ways that Gramsci actually talked about and approached race in his work. And then those linkages began to happen between Gramsci's notion of race and Stuart Hall. Right. And this project emerged from out of that, right? Which is, you know, Gramsci is thinking about race. Gramsci is talking about race. And not just like encoding it in this concept of the subaltern, but, you know, as I began looking more for it, it was actually there. Right. He says it in his in his 25th notebook on the subaltern, right? He actually says it's about race, it's about religion, it's about language. And you, um, even though the notebook isn't translated, only like little pieces of it are. Um, that project's actually going on now and it should publish late this year. So yeah, I, I was excited okay, to learn cool. this recently too, <laughs> but like too late for, for this book, sadly, but like that for me became important. And it was a way for me to think about Gramsci as a racial theorist, Gramsci as um, trying to mobilize race and class together, and then how he was doing this. Is this different? Does it give us a different sort of repertoires of, of tools and concepts right. to understand things about racism and racial domination or the process of racialization that don't really exist? Uh, uh, can it be articulated to concepts that do exist in critical race theory, in cultural studies? It was important for me too, and I'll, I'll just end by saying this because I really did have, I do have kind of an intellectual obsession with Gramsci's work. <laughs> we all really, pay someone. Yeah, we all pay, right, <laughs> fair, exactly. And so for me, honestly, Gramsci's been a sort of persistent presence in my scholarly and intellectual life and probably will continue to be for some time, for a long time, forever. That really was sort of a basis for me to work work through that idea. The dissertation didn't have all of that, but it right. had pieces of it. And so the, the book was a way to sort of like, you know, liberate myself from that dissertation project yeah. and begin to think <laughs> about how, how I want to talk about these things, you know. And not, you know, not being, in, in the United States, not being in the field of sociology now, right, right as like professionally, so to speak, right, occupationally, gave me a lot of room to work with other ideas, other thinkers, and to work with other methods and other mm-hmm. approaches that weren't exclusively sociological in the in the sort of US-centric sense, right. which really favors not just quantitative work or mixed methodological work, but really has a lot of gatekeepers, has a sort of way that it polices and disciplines the boundaries of its discipline. And right. so not professionally and occupationally being in it, I, I began to recognize like, hey, I can get away with writing a book that I really want to write right. as long as the scholarship is as careful as I can be within the limits of who, who I am and how I yeah. think and whatever, right? So I've looked at your work and, uh. and you know, and I, I, you know, the work that you're doing right now on race and social movements, I really think is unique, certainly unique within the field of social movement scholarship. Um, is there something important about the concept of, of racialization in the social movements literature that you think is do, being done well? Is there something that is missing, right? Um, or is there anything that you, you want to talk about in terms of the relationship between social movement scholarship now and the ways that the concept of racialization is, is I'm going to say mobilized as opposed to operationalized. <laughs> cool. but, 
Uh, yeah, use developed an important distinction. Um, yeah. So I think one of the things that's happening right now in terms of social movements literature talking about race is that people are basically saying that people are actually using race as a fixed category. Yeah. So race, instead of being understood as socially fluid, historic, contingent, mm-hmm. um, politically like contested, it's just talked about as like black or right. white or yeah. and even if that is acknowledged often race is not acknowledged in social movements literature yeah. not as much as it should be so the civil rights movement is the case that everyone likes to use right, right. so they'll talk about black insurgency or things like that but i'm like but what does that mean in yes. terms of a historical context like why does the racialization aspect matter and it, it just disappears yeah. It just it falls kind of flat. Right. Um, so one of the things that I'm trying to do in my own work is bring attention to that. So yeah. I'm like, okay, how have people ignored this? Yes. Uh, yeah. Right. Uh, by kind of going through the literature and all the big social movements journals right. and talking, especially as they talk about race-based social movements, right. um, and finding out what's included yeah. and what's not included. But that's that's definitely where I've tried to come with my own work because I'm like there are silences um, that we're not acknowledging especially coming from the tradition of like critical race theory black feminist thought just acknowledging like what those two literatures speak to each other in a way saying we have to talk about what's missing yeah um, and one of the things that I'm like is missing I'm like race is missing or if it is talked about it's not talked about as a fluid category, right. um, which it should be, because the way that we think about race-based social movements in this moment should not have been the way that we were talking about them like 20 years ago or even right. 30 years ago. Like the post-civil rights, pre-civil rights distinctions matter. And then yeah. if we're looking at like historical movements, which is also something that we don't do when right. we talk about race-based social movements in the United States. We kind of just like civil rights and beyond. And I'm like, there were social movements before yeah. that happening even in uh prior to the 20th century um so things like that just kind of excavating that work and uncovering all of those complex things yeah exactly yeah no i i think that's work of the ways things have been ignored Mm -hmm. right because you're actually documenting that in your work i mean it's almost like a conceptual inventory of like this is a gap here. Right. It says it's there, but it's not there in this way. And I think that sort of way of constructing or saying the needed theoretical framework here is, and here's precisely where it isn't and why it isn't here, right? I think that's actually, uh, this is when I said before, like, that I think your work is unique. I think that's unique. Like, you're producing, like, you're producing these sort of Aporias, right? Like these are the, the spaces that are absent and they're absent in this way. Right. And so it, it gives us sort of a way of, of like it gives us sort of like the invisibilization of conceptual inventories around race. Right. right? But also introducing the idea that these are necessarily changeable, right? right? In the ways that they're both not being talked about in the ways that they need to emerge, mm-hmm. right? So I think actually that is that is really that's one of the really important ways, right? right? Like this is if race is going to intervene in, right, social movement studies, right, and actually begin to, in a sense, produce its own field, I think this is right. one of the ways that it could happen. One of the things that you do in your book is talk about what's not there and yeah. how it should be there. Yeah. Um, so why do you think incorporating ideology is important for social movements literature, especially ones yeah. that deal race-based social movements? Th- this is a really, th- this to me was like one of the most important questions. And even though the, the chap, the, the book starts out talking about tactics, right? Like the importance of tactics, the idea of tactics as a cultural practice. 
that for me was like a foundation so that I could also talk about ideology. The big part of the impetus for, for lack of a better way of saying it, I guess, but bringing ideology back into social movement studies, right, right was that sort of tension between ideology and framing. The idea that framing talks about how ideas are limited around a social movement, how they can bridge people into social movements, how they mobilize people, right? right? And for me, um, there was that sort of issue around um, the idea that ideology then becomes sort of this like symbolic pool that right. gets drawn upon so that frames are resonant. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just thought that the tradition of thinking about ideology was much more theoretically rich than that and that there was more to work with in there. Yeah. But when I got into... Um, when I got back into, I should say, um, reading ideology theory and ideology critique, I realized like, oh, um, there, there's a limit here because ideology most often is talked about as something that people are caught in. Right. Um, there's, it's sort of like this kind of like, um, you know, thick phenomenological web or this Mm -hmm. thick web of relationships that frame how people get subjected to or sort of, you know... Uh, controlled or dominated or whatever, right? Like in the world. And it's not thought about as something that social movements, social movement organizations have as a part. It's not thought about as a way to make sense of of what social movement organizations are. Mm -hmm. Like in the sort of like different theories that constitute what, how we talk about social movement organizations. Ideology is not in there. But what I, what I began to realize is that um, there's a relationship between ideology and practices. Mm-hmm. And, and a, there was, you know, a part of it was the language wasn't there in the social movement scholarship, but the ideas were. And there's some really, like, important ones. Like, Mayor Zold's ideas were right. important in that regard. But, but they still weren't in that language. And it wasn't just simply a language. It was that, you know, those language had... That la- did, the language that was missing had uh, concepts in it and a logic to it that uh, I really felt like had something to offer to social movement study scholarship. Mm-hmm. And so that notion that tactics have a relationship to ideology was became right. really important to me in, in theorizing this and the idea that there are other mediators and they are in relationship mm-hmm. to one another and they're moving. So strategic plans are another thing. Right. And, you know, the sort of organizational structure of the movement, which includes, like, for example, to go back to the social movement studies literature, how it mobilizes resources, right. what it considers a resource, right? What's, what is a limit to what it's going to use as a resource? All of those things. That became important to me in terms of, like, ideology does have a really important relationship to that. Yeah. But also the idea in the theories of ideology that are, are well outside of social movement studies and maybe even sociology proper, right? The idea that um, there's a relationship, like a sort of a relationship between ideology, practices, rituals. We see this in Althusser's work. It's, right. it's in Stuart Hall's work as well. It's it's in Gramsci's work. It's in Nikos Polancis's work, the, whatever the list goes on, right? But like- <laughs> It's in the work. It's in the work. <laughs> it's in the work, it's there, right? But like that idea that um, there's a, there is a relationship there um, that's, like, in a sense, mutually constituted, yeah. but it's about reproducing something, right? That, to me, was like, okay, so it's about reproducing something. Well, it's about reproducing the organization. But, but a social movement organization, especially the ones that I'm dealing with, mm-hmm. progressive movements, movements that are anti-racist, movements that are anti-capitalist, um, the idea that people are cognizant of the ideology they're participating in, right. that to me was a really strong departure point. And that is in 
Gramsci's concept of ideology is historically organic. It's in Wolfgang Fritz Hogg's concept of ideology as a societalization process, mm. which is based on, you know, Frederick Engels' contributions to the right. German ideology. All of those things, right? And then, um, based even more, much more recently, Andrew A.K. Thompson's work on the black block, right. um, this notion that direct action produces knowledge, tactics produce or open up areas of knowledge. Knowledge is not a priori. Right. There isn't a way to train activists other than through activism, which right. produces this knowledge. That, that There's a, a whole theoretical dynamic there that's entirely absent mm -hmm. from the literature and social movements. And this notion that if we're conscious of ideology, it changes the way that we think about it, but it's still there, right? Right. Movements are ideational. They do make meaning. And that is a thing right. that's interdependent. It does have a life of its own. Trying to capture that in a theory was important for me because yeah. it was like doing the type of work that needed to be done because there is this rich intellectual history and ideology theory and ideology critique mm -hmm. that's completely not... I shouldn't say completely not. There are there are people who do when they talk about symbols, they do acknowledge yeah. that, but in, in sort of the form of like a literature view, like so right. so has talked about uh, symbols or semiotics or meaning as or meaning communities or whatever. Right. But there's something far more active, and and the idea of people being conscious of their organization as um, you know interdependent, having having a life of its own, but people. Without people, no organization, but without organization, no people in this movement, mm -hmm. right? Um, without ideas, um, no way to sort of anchor and organize and connect people. But those ideas really, in a sense, drive what people are going to do and how they're going to act and what they're going to act right. upon, what they consider a resource, what they're going to mobilize as a resource, who they're going to form alliances with. That was important to me because that dynamic was just not there, right? So... It was a way for me to, to try to bring those things together, but also at the same time say these things are in relationship to one another. Mm -hmm. They're co-determinant, but they're not fundamentally de deterministic, right. right? And also the idea, too, that's really normative in the social movements literature, which is once you meet your goal, it goes away. Yeah. And, and that, oh. that notion <laughs> was really upsetting to me, too. And the idea that there were only some ways to talk about continuance or abeyance I wanted to also try to find some other way of engaging with that. Right. So that's actually like a really good like engagement point because one of the mm. things right now that I'm noticing is that there's a lot of contestation around abeyance and yeah. when a movement ends. And so there's this basically this idea in social movements literature. It's like there's a stop and yeah. there's or there's a start point. There's a stop point or this is where, you know, the most action yeah. has happened. Um, that has a tendency to erase how people are doing action you know, not yeah. oriented around the state. Right. Um, so I think that's where I think this, this whole idea of like people understand what's going on and where they need to like yeah. have a big, like, I guess, explosion for lack of a yeah. better word. Um, and when they actually need to be doing more stuff at the local and community level, right. Um, right. because they are aware and they plan these things. <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. Right. Like that, I think that's a really good point, right? Like, um, we, we, talked off tape about the Black Panther Party. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's it, it, it was a party. It had an organizational structure that wasn't like the traditional political party, but in some ways it, it was. Right. And the work that was, uh, the, the community level work that's done by the Black Panther Party, right, um, required a persistent organizational structure. You know, as Kathleen Cleaver talks about, is. Right is a way of articulating something that SNCC couldn't articulate and right. wouldn't articulate. 
And the idea that you could do work in that movement, right, because the ideology was broadcasting it, but not just broadcasting it, it was enabling it, right? right? Like, you know, for lack of a better way of saying it, like, the Black Panther Party put its money where its mouth was for militant activists within SNCC so that they could say, like, this is the work I want to be doing, right? Right. That it's, you know, there's obviously a relationship between you know, practice or tactical practices and ideology. And that's a really good example Mm -hmm. of like, you know, it's, you know, it's not a question of chicken or egg. It's a question of process, right? right? But also to this idea that there's longevity to to these movements, right? And and it is in these organizations that are doing work that is not um, oriented around protest actions, but are doing a whole host of other things. I mentioned A.K. Thompson before, um, his organizational work ended and turned into the journal Upping the Ante, mm-hmm. which now is a journal. It's no longer those core of activists that are directly involved with it, but yeah. it's an active political um, and intellectual journal. It's an active scholarly journal mm-hmm. that people contribute to. And, you know, this, you know, it could be that that would be like a sort of willy-nilly example of an abeyance structure, but yeah. it's more than that. And I, I think too, like, you know, it's something that creates sort of a strategic posture when, you know, um, movements start to become broadly active again. It becomes this sort of orienting point. But those folks, too, who participated are active in movements and have been active in movements right. for a while. And so that dynamic is just missing. And I think, like, bringing those things together becomes important. It's also what we've talked about also before, right? Like <laughs> off tape, so to speak. It's like that, that idea that people are... Yeah, people are pe- aware of basically what they're doing. They're their own theorists. Right. Like they don't... They, they, I mean, it's great that there's this field that we can work in, but they really don't need us as much as we believe that they do. Yeah. And what they're saying actually would far more greatly informs the work that we do, mm-hmm. right? Which is interesting because it adds these different empirical levels. Like right. there are, t- we can analyze the communiques that movements, and in doing that, we have to acknowledge that there's stuff in there that's way more sophisticated than... Oh, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think often we also have a tendency, like as you were saying, like we think that social movements social movement actors need us. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I'm just like, yes, they read our things, but they're also engaged in critiquing what we do because right. they recognize they recognize how their own voices are being taken away. Yeah. Um, and that's something that social movement scholars should not be doing. Yeah, exactly. Um, it doesn't work. Like, we are like a theoretical field, but we should also be oriented right. in a praxis of action. Right. right? Like, we, exactly. it's not going to work to create social movement theories yeah. if we're completely removed from the current theoretical or the current contemporary moment. Yeah. That's actually, I'm bringing, that's, I think that's a key point, right? Yeah. Like, so like, you know, Benford and Snow mentioned all the way back in the mid nineties that like people need to get back in the streets if they're doing social movement research. Yeah. Right. But, but there's a sort of, it's a double-edged sword, right? Because there's also that notion that like, the social movements are doing their own research and they have their own theories and um, they have their own intellectuals that are organic to the movements and so on and so forth. And they're critical of the work that we do, rightfully so, right? right? But also the way that sociologists do work. And I think that's what was attractive to me in the book about thinking about the project through a cultural studies mm-hmm. lens, right? More so than a sociological lens because you can make a standpoint. And in a lot of ways, it, it, there's a strength to doing that because you know, the theory becomes more robust. You're like, these are the theoretical traditions I'm engaging with. This is why I'm engaging with these theoretical traditions. 
This is what I hope that these ideas contribute to as a project that's organizational, political, in the framework of, of contemporary social right. movements. And this is where I, you know, I want to, I want to live in this world, yeah. right? Like, and it makes it a more robust project, but it makes it a project that's other than what we would consider sociological. Yeah. But I think there's also room for that scholarship now too. We've seen a lot more of that mm -hmm. now. I was thinking about not just the recent book by uh, Nick Schernick and Alex Williams, it's Inventing the Future, mm -hmm. where they're saying like, this is a political project. You know, right. we have a post-hegemonic political project. This is, you know, this is where we want. The, our, our political desires, we can get to our political desires um, for a fully automated, you know, future if we do these things, yeah. right? And then and then the rest of the work is is heavily annotated, rich and scholarly on the one hand, but I'm also thinking too about, you know, a US sociologist, when William I. Robinson wrote Theories of Global Capital, he yeah. said, this is a Marxist work. This is its political standpoint. This is what it hopes to do. Yeah. It is highly critical of globalization. It believes it's fundamentally exploitative. It was, it was clearly not just a Marxist work, right. but a socialist work. Yeah. And I think that there's a lot of strength in producing from a standpoint. And so for me, like, it's easier to do that. I mean, you know, I wasn't—I certainly was not the sociologist that William Robinson was when he wrote *Theories of Global Capital*. So I couldn't get away with stuff like that, and right. I knew that. But I knew that cultural studies would allow me to get away with it. So I figured if I wrote a book where I could firmly put my foot in, in the sort of field of cultural studies and and somewhat in sociology, maybe yeah. like I, I would be better served. But also, the you know, it wasn't just sort of like an attempt to kind of get around sociology. I cultural studies was, was and has always been important to the work that I do. So it was always a project that was thinking, I was thinking about social movements in terms of cultural studies, right. which gives you a lot more room yeah. to not just merely do empirical work in, in, in protest demonstrations where like participant observation, but to actually acknowledge that you're a part of that political project and, and to theorize from that standpoint, right? right? Um, on the one hand, but on the other hand too, um, the, the idea that, um, uh, you know, there is, uh, you know, uh, the engagement with that tradition and engagement with the sociological tradition means you have to, you have to explain how you're doing that and why you're doing it the way that you are. But, right. but for me, at least cultural studies allowed me to do work that I felt like I couldn't safely or comfortably do within the framework of sociology. Yeah. So one of the ways that people are kind of uh, combating that or not, there's a lot of critique against acknowledging that you are involved uh, or you have a standpoint, right? Yeah. Because people are like, oh, you're an epistemological insider. Like, yeah. your work isn't objective. It's not value-free. Like, yeah. you, right? Like, yeah. you should not be this critical or um, come to the work in this way. Yeah. Um, and I think one of the things that your book really does add to the conversation is, like, we have to. Yeah. Um, because otherwise, if we're not doing it, why are we writing it? It doesn't... It, it, like, yes, historical context and all of these other things matter, but they matter in the terms of what we're actually doing right. in the world. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I, so I, I often think about, like, Sandra Harding's argument around this notion of strong objectivity. That, right. Like, when we acknowledge that we're, you know, like, partial subjects, right? And, you know, I mean, this really was sort of in the heyday of identity politics, yeah. right? So, like, and she's saying, like, our, our science becomes stronger because we're acknowledging how partial our perspective is, we're, we're sort of critical and thinking critically about methodologies right. that are or have been sort of wrought through positivism and objectivism and all of this stuff. And so by acknowledging those limits, we acknowledge the limits of the types of science or in this case scholarship we can and cannot do. Yeah. And, you know, and so that notion of 
a standpoint becomes yeah. really important. I've always liked or thought that notion of standpoint becomes an important departure point for, for scholarship. But I think you're right. The idea that, you know, Gramsci and Stuart Hall both use the term conjuncture, the yeah. idea that we're embedded within a particular moment that in its orbit constructs not just political problems, but also political limitations. Mm -hmm. It constructs ideological frameworks that make certain ways of talking and making sense of the world more robust, more authoritative than other times, right? That notion that if we don't acknowledge that in our work methodologically, if we don't acknowledge that in terms of how we're thinking about what we're going to do, if we don't acknowledge the project we're engaged in, right, like we find ourselves in this moment, right, or this conjuncture, if we don't acknowledge that, then why are we doing the work? What is the work about? What is it for, right? And the notion for Gramsci is like that determining the conjuncture analytically becomes the departure point for Mm -hmm. political work. And for me, like determining the conjuncture analytically is a project in and of itself. It's hard to do. Um, but you know, the idea that we can, um, we can say these are, you know, this scholarship is pointed at a, a, you know, this scholarship raises a particular set of questions and it's pointed at a particular group of problems and, you know, working this out becomes important or this, this is, this is what the work is about, right? right? Somewhere in there, you have to acknowledge what the political project is. And and I think what you're pointing to is it's like some fields, if you do that, will tell you you're not doing the work of that field. Absolutely. And and I I mean, to be crass about it, like for me, it's like, well, then I'm going to find a way to do this work. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, mean, that's a great point. I think one of the times that academics, we really get worked into this, like, Mm, it has to just be done in this specific way. And if it's not done in this way, it doesn't have meaning, right? Yeah, right. Uh, but we're creating meaning for other academics. I'm like, we went to school. We know what these yeah. things mean. Like, how are we moving forward? Yeah. Um, because we can sit and reproduce the same things over and over, or we can move forward. Right, exactly. Um, yeah. So let me ask you this, because I, I, one of the things I was thinking about is, when we had talked about this on the side, right? Yeah. Um, this idea that um, when when um, social movements sort of gloms onto um, either a, a, for lack of a better way of saying it, data or an event that seems really robust or important to talk about, on the one hand, or gets into sort of an, a sort of uh, an inventory of concepts it thinks are important and underexplored, right? On the other hand, um, because of how it's sort of had was not sort of it's had a deeply problematic relationship to race critical race theory thinking about racialization and i think this is in your work right it ultimately in reproducing those inventories winds up reproducing its its own racism categorically right um so i mean like i was i I wanted you to talk a little bit about that because i think your work addresses that issue who especially in the context of like People are using like Twitter data, internet data, all of these things. Uh, but one of the things that they're doing is that they're still engaging with social movement, theory, like prominent social movement yeah. theories, and they're not addressing them critically. So it's like we know that there is a gap in like political process theory and other theories um, and how they address race or don't address race. Yeah. But instead of people saying race is missing here or this is how I'm 
taking a racialized perspective they just don't use it so when they're analyzing the data it's still like okay well this is the same thing we saw what people were doing with newspapers right you're right. just counting events and stuff or counting a hashtag you're not engaged in the discourse around it and that's where the most important context of it is you're basically reproducing racism in the literature and i know some people wouldn't call it that but like even it's not an intent like the intent around right. it doesn't matter right um, exactly right yeah yeah you're reproducing a structure right and, yeah it has nothing to do with your intentions exactly <laughs> Right, right, exactly right, yeah. <laughs> Folks get really hurt about that, and it's like, no, that's right. not... I'm not... also not calling you racist. Yeah, exactly. If you want to take it that way, okay, that's yeah, not right. what I said. Yeah, right, that's not my problem. <laughs> it's literally not what I said. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's also something with race and social movements, right? People are like, well, if we're talking about race, then we must be talking about it as, like, fixed, right? Yeah. Like, there is no right. room to see race as fluid or racisms as right. fluid. Um, like, you have to, yeah. right? Because if you're not, then you are still reproducing that same kind of right. thing. Yeah. Um, that's, I think that that point was really important to me when I was working on this book and working through Hall, right? Yeah. Because for Hall, it's like every time racism gets reproduced or every time racialization processes reproduce race, there's, there's differences, right? right? Conjunctures are different. Um, the sort of instances that constitute the way in which race is going to be meaningful at a different moment in time are different. Right. And that notion, and we, we both read this recently together, the notion of um, the sort of uh, sociology that looks at, at economic forces, that looks at structural aspects, so, sociology that looks at culture, right? right? And, and aspects that um, are, are socially significant or mm -hmm. signify or make meaning of, right? right? That those two things can't be articulated to one another. And part of Holt, Stuart Hall's project and part of the Cultural Studies Project was <laughs> making sense of those articulations. Right. And so that really was, in a sense, that's the cultural studies thrust behind the book. It's like, it's about making sense of those articulations. And we also recently together read Paul Gilroy's Ain't No Black in the Union Jack. Right. I think that's one of the best books that demonstrates how you do that. It starts out with a critique of class. Right. And it, it's sort of, you know, um, excoriation of sociologies of race, it's limitation, it's marginalization of that, which moves into this incredibly robust entreatment of race that sociology can't do, that only cultural studies can do, mm -hmm. and does it ultimately sort of, you know, weaving this tapestry of a cultural logic that is right. part of what cultural studies work is, and then ends by talking about social movements. It has both sociology and cultural studies in that book, it demonstrates those differences, but at the end, it makes a connection between cultural studies and social movement literature, early right. social movement. It's like the beginning of new social movements literature, right? right? Castells, like, you know, like yeah, <laughs> movements in the city. That, yeah. and, and, and so, um, you know, I think like that kind of work, that kind of articulation, like it's amazing to me that like, Gilroy's book is like the early second wave of cultural studies work right. linked to the Birmingham School. There's there's something in there that's that's certainly not U.S. sociology, right? And, and on the one hand, um, but also in a sense too, is at that moment defining cultural studies work in the U.K. And cultural studies work in the U.K. is gone. I mean, yeah. the Birmingham School went away. Uh, you know, it, it didn't meet its its research requirements and it went away. <laughs> and, and it's, you know, in a lot of ways been spread out. But it's like, I mean, cultural studies is still around. But it's, it, it's, it, it's gone beyond the Birmingham traditions in some ways. But in other ways, too, the best aspects of the Birmingham tradition uh, in, in, in part because that the, the, the um, Birmingham School isn't, isn't actually there anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's not there and it, that project's not um, being reproduced. But that project was so embedded 
in understanding the relationship between race, politics, and culture, right? right? And that's, I think, for me, the biggest loss of the Birmingham school was the, that loss of, like, and the schools didn't pop up around it, right? Like, Kabina Mercer didn't go to Yale and start a, a black cultural studies school at Yale. Uh, Gilroy, you know, isn't doing that work at, at LSE. But I, I do think that, like, you know, um, you, you, you do see it, like, you know, I, I go to Cultural Studies Association in the United States, like, Fred Moten goes every year. Yeah. And, like, brings his listening collective. And so it does get reproduced, but it certainly doesn't look like the Birmingham school. And that's fine, yeah. you know? But like that kind of fragmentation of me is interesting because there are all these sites where that work's being done. It's just not being done in sociology. Right. Right. And that even if the people are trying to do and do it in sociology, they are still drawing on like a cultural studies framework, especially right. critical race theory. Like it's Yeah, they just, have to, right? right? Right. There's no way to not. Yeah. Um, but also it's like this marginalization, right? It's like, oh, if you're going to acknowledge this, then you're not sociological right. enough. Um, it's yeah. like, okay. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you too, cause we recently, we recently like sat down with a group of folks and we talked about cultural studies. Was there anything like, what's your relationship to that? How do you see it in relationship to sociology here? And, um, uh, you know, is there anything in, in that sort of like, for, I guess describing it a tradition feels weird because it's new, but yeah. I guess it is a tradition. Is there anything in that tradition that particularly works for you? And the tradition in the of cultural, cultural studies. studies. Yeah. Um, so I definitely believe wholeheartedly in bringing in work from not just uh, the academic field you're in. Yeah, um, right. So one of the things that I really, really like about cultural studies is that it's like, you got it. Like, yeah. there's no way that you can't do yeah. it. Um, but I also like that the way that cultural studies does engage with the social world yeah. inherently. Yeah. You know, in sociology, if you if you do it in the traditional, like, yeah. white sociological canon, that's not acceptable. That's right. not... Um, so because I wasn't, like... I didn't. I wasn't taught sociologic, sociological anything from a traditional standpoint. Right. You know, I started off in critical race theory and anti-colonialist efforts. That is the only sociology I knew yeah. until I got to grad school. So I got here and I was like, "What? Are, what are we doing? <laughs> What's going on? We're not connected to the community, y'all don't. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. Um, so that has been a really interesting process. And as I like draw on other other academic fields and other disciplines, I'm like, "Well, cultural studies is saying what I want to say." Yeah. Um, so I been incorporating more of that into my own work because yeah. I'm like it's there and I know it's there and someone is doing it yeah. um, even if it's not in sociology all of the time yeah that's so that's one of the things that I find so ironic is like when I go to sociology meetings it's it's folks they're in their occupations they're in their careers they're in the states okay. right even even if it's as big as ASA like it's folks from the states and I go to a lot of the area meetings it's definitely folks from the states and mm -hmm. they are they are, you know, professionalized to the nines at those conferences. They're like dressed, and, and it's like, oh god, it's yeah. like y'all, especially the airy ones. It's like y'all are a small group. Who are you trying to impress? Right. Like I don't you understand. You don't need a suit, you know. And and basically, like people who are like, for lack of a better term, and this is not a great term, but expats from their disciplines, yeah. doing this incredibly vibrant scholarship um, that you're not going to certainly not going to find in U.S. sociology, um, and that. For me, too, it, because it's these different fields, what we're seeing take shape there is, like, it's a conversation. It's ongoing. It's developing it in process. Um, and it's, it's, it seems to me it's, it's vital for the type of work that you've described, that yeah. I want to do, that you are doing. Um, 
and um, especially, uh, you know, I, to be like, I mean, a conference like, um, like I went to the last American Studies Association meeting. I mean, it was enormous. Yeah. But if you look, if you were to go to like universities and look in, for departments, there aren't a whole lot. Right. Like, but to go to that meeting, it's bigger than any of the like different regional ASA meetings. Mm-hmm. It's it dwarfs it. It's and it's big. Like maybe it's certainly not as big as the Modern Language Association or the American Sociological Association meeting, yeah. but it is really big. Right. It's way more exciting. It's way more my folks, right? Like I'll you know, more interesting places. Yeah, uh, exactly. <laughs> and so you know, even like I'm on the I'm one of the officers for the Cultural Studies Association, and like I'm shocked at how many submissions we've got. When you think about like the structure of funding, all that stuff, like we still have a lot of folks that are going to come to this meeting, yeah. and it's like that's that's really exciting to me because because like folks kind of have to go to the professional meeting, and then maybe they can choose to go to one other meeting. But I think. That conversation and the fact that people actually free, feel free to do work that's anti-racist, that maybe comes out of a black radical tradition, that comes out of other radical traditions at those meetings, and really build something, but also find people who are doing that kind of building and know that the type of work that they're building is dependent upon making relationships with those other folks that are not just in scholarly communities right. and professional communities, but are but also activist communities and, and may wind up at those meetings and that that's indispensable to the continuance of their work. Right. Right. And also a lot of ways are like their own, not just intellectual survival, but psychic survival. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I think and it, it's, it hit me when you said performance studies, um, because so I, I go, even though I go to the American Sociological Association yeah. meetings every year, I always go to the Association of Black Sociologists first. Yeah. Um, and one of the ways that people talk about this, they're like, okay, how are we surviving? Yeah. Uh, which is not the thing that you should be saying for a career, right? Yeah. Um, right. Right. But they're like, how are we, how are we actually staying committed to the work that we're doing? And one of the things that people often say is they're like, oh, I'm engaging in, like, dancing, um, or I'm writing poems, or things like that. So, like, cultural meaning that comes through as a way to uh, actually do sociological work that's still invested in communities and, like, practices of justice and all of these things are always rooted in the arts. Yeah. Um, Which is, I'm like, yeah, okay. Uh, Which also helps for me a lot because that's, like, where my love first was of everything. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. That the idea that in in a discipline meaningful work has to be divorced right from from scholarly work or academic work, which is really ultimately, uh, you know, if in in sort of like to to whatever portion of sociological research in the United States falls within humanistic areas, humanistic oh, fields, and humanistic disciplines, right? Like the idea that that divorce is necessary is insane, like. Right. Why do this at all if you're going to divorce the, the, the meaningful from the sort right. of intellectual, the reflective from the intellectual and the scholarly? It doesn't make any sense. And so people have to seek out for survival, right? right. Like whatever, <laughs> like dance, poetry, whatever people do, anything. anything at all, like making music or whatever, making art, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, no, you know, like that, you know, that should be a part of your work. If you're doing that too, that should certainly right. be that is your work. the work. Yeah, exactly. Um. Right. Or like we've been talking about too, like activism, right? Oh, like, absolutely. You know, it, that literally directly informs, like, it's, that's my argument. Like, activism is the point at which, like, it's the a posteriori point at which one can then begin to theorize. Yeah. But then one has to understand that as a process, 
as a system, as having a logic all its own, like that in, in a lot of ways is like the skeleton logic for what's going on in the book. Like oh, that's, absolutely. that has to be the case, yeah. right? And, um, you know, like uh, my friend, comrade and colleague, uh, A.K. Thompson makes that point mm -hmm. in uh, his book, Black Block, White Riot. Like, you know, direct action is the, is the pedagogical point from out of which, right. right, one then can begin to not just strategize, but also construct theoretical frameworks, can, right. can begin to depart into a theoretical terrain that is fundamentally a new one because the event that spawned it right. is something surprising. <laughs> it produces knowledge or produces the gap that needs to be filled with knowledge without, without what I call tactical practices, but without that, you don't have new knowledge, right? right? And that, in a lot of ways, that kind of doubles back on the social movement scholarship where it's like, y'all haven't been in the streets. So we're seeing a lot of stuff get reproduced right. that's really not that interesting. Yeah, and or it's is also, adding, it's right, I'm sorry. No, yeah. no, no, it's, but it's also like, so theory definitely informs method, right? Yeah. Um, so because people are still using the same theoretical frameworks, yeah. the methods and how we understand social movements has not changed. Yeah. Yes. Um, which is why it's like annoying that people are like looking at Twitter data in the same way that we would look at newspapers for yeah. just like content or a specific word. And like that's, yeah. that can't be the way that we engage right. with this anymore. But we also have to stop thinking about it from like this white vantage point, yes. right? Yeah. Uh, because this is the logic that it's oriented in. And like a lot of the movement, okay, a lot of the movement actors and a lot of the people who have been producing work in social movements yeah. who are actual activists are not white. Yeah. That's not right. the theoretical framework that they're working from. And, you know, they're anti-racist, they're anti-colonial, they're anti-transphobic. Yeah. They're like, they're like, we're not doing any of this stuff, but if we're producing scholarship that's rooted in that inherently, yeah. then we're not getting the message that they're saying yeah. anyway. It, yes, exactly <laughs> right. That I'll just end by saying this since we're like running out of time, but yeah. like that for me, that was the most interesting thing about Gramsci as uh, deriving case studies from his work, um, using his theory, um, sort of decoding subaltern into racialization is that idea that um, at, at this sort of one of the largest mobilizations and organizational efforts he was involved in was quite literally and in, in an evidentiary way about finding a strategy to articulate race to class, right. being conscious of racialization. That in, in a lot of ways, like he is an important theorist undoubtedly, Absolutely. but that in a lot of ways is a really unique thing. And so for me, that really was the hook with Gramsci was that he's conscious of racialization. He under, he's written about it. He understands how, how it works, but he also is trying to think strategically about how do I mobilize class alongside of race? Right. And I, I can't think of anyone else who's done that. Certainly not, you know, in 19, uh, you know, 1916 to 1919, right. you know, writes about it, uh, in 1933 or whatever. And all along the way from 1926 to 1933 actually writes about it, but, um, gives us a way to sort of understand and, and think about that connection. Mm -hmm. And that actually has a language that jibes with what happens in social movements research. Yeah. And, you know, so like for me, that was, that was really ultimately to a discovery for me that happened when I was writing the book, like, He's conscious of this. He's writing about this. Right. This, you know, there, there's something unique here, and, and this needs to sort of be blown out theoretically, but you know, to its appropriate level of abstraction, like right. it needs to be built into something. And so that really, like, you know, that relationship between, um, you know, our my concernment involvement with activism, 
how we think about theory in relationship to that, right? Like, and and anti-racist projects in you know uh, political projects, organizational projects, um, demonstrations, movements like that. To me, not just in terms of scholarship, but you know, in in life, like right. that that was that was the connection for me that that kind of worked the best, mm-hmm. and really you know made made the project more urgent than just like this is a book. I'm gonna right. write a book. Yeah. Yay. Yay. <laughs> We're done. Thank you for listening to the Spotlight series. If you're interested in hosting an episode, get in touch.